2003, the first lecture was delivered on the 23rd of July 2003 by Professor Seneca Bandarnaika, who I'm very happy to see here this evening, at the ARTI Auditorium. Over the years, many architects have graced this occasion and shared their thoughts on the study, practice, and culture of architecture. Today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce a distinguished son of Sri Lanka, Cecil Belmont. Born in Sri Lanka and raised in Kandy, where he attended Trinity College and the University of Peradeniya before joining Imperial College uh, in London. Today, he is an international renowned designer, structural engineer, author, and deputy chairman of the international multidisciplinary engineering firm, Arab, and has been described by the artist Anish Kapoor as the world's greatest engineer. As an engineer, he has been involved in some of the most daring and eye-catching projects of the last several decades, working along with architects such as Philip Johnson, Rem Koolhaas, Alvaro Cesar, and Toyo Ito. His Serpentine Gallery Pavilion, uh, done, by, done with Ito in 2002, was my own personal introduction to his amazing work. His contributions to some of these projects have been such that, as in the CCTV building in Beijing, he has been treated as equal collaborator and co-creator. His own work with the Advanced Geometry Unit at Arabs, which he founded in 2000, includes the highly adventurous zigzagging Pedro and Ines footbridge in Coimbra, Portugal. As a much sought after teacher for many years, he has, amongst other things, held the Sarinan professorship at Yale University and is currently the Kenzo Tange visiting professor at Harvard. He's also the Paul Philippe Kret, professor of architecture at the University of Pennsylvania School of Design, once held by the great architect Louis Kahn himself. His many publications include number nine, which has been uh, of 1998, which has been translated to seven languages, and informal in 2002, which not only won the Bannister Pr Fletcher Prize for the best book in architecture, but has been translated into four languages and is um, standard text for many schools of architecture. It has also won many prizes for the graphic design uh, of the book. In the autumn of 2007, the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art in Denmark dedicated an exhibition to his work titled The Frontiers of Architecture. Another exhibition, the World of Structural Engineers Cecil Belmont, concluded at the Tokyo Opera City Art Gallery in March this year. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Cecil Belmont to deliver the seventh Jeffrey Bauer Memorial Lecture this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Shana. Um, Good evening, everyone. Uh, more feedback also. Can you hear me at the back? Yep. Everyone okay? Um, well, thank you to the Jeffrey Bauer Trust to invite me to speak today. And um, it's a great honor to be here. Um, he's a great man doing wonderful things in Sri Lanka. And I'm hard to believe that uh, as a little boy, playing down the streets of Borella, just not far from here, that I would be one day up here myself, talking about uh, my work and my architecture. Never thought it would happen. Anyway, um, and a great hello to friends uh, I haven't met, no doubt, from uh, my old school days, might have come here, hopefully. And um, hello to you, and I hope we'll catch up with you afterwards, after the talk, and we'll have a drink. What I want to talk about today is the making of architectural form 
and the conceptual models behind the thinking. Um, it's not just something you do by intuition, of course you do, but there are deeper thought processes and deeper assumptions of space and structure that goes into the making of architecture. But before I get there, just as a brief introduction to, with a few slides of my career in a way, encompassed in a minute or two, um, when I left Sri Lanka, could we, are the lights going to go off or are they going to stay on? Do you want them off? Okay, I think it's better because you can see the pictures better. Anyway, I'll, I'll go on. I hope you can see the pictures. Um, so when I left Sri Lanka, I went to England and uh, as Shana said, finished uh, some advanced education and joined the firm Arab. And they had just finished the Sydney Opera House. And what I learned there was that behind the complex form and the many layered shell uh, arch forms here, that there was a simple thought. If you take a football, oh, do I have a laser pointer, by the way? Sorry. Um, I'll try and, you see these, uh, these fan shapes are put on the surface of a football and you can cut them out and then you, you get the arch forms. And not only that, because they're on the surface of a football-like shape, they're a constant radius. So everything could be prefabricated cheaply. And then you get this marvelous form put together. So underneath the complex, there is a very simple rigor. And usually projects that have that simple rigor behind the complex are quite rich and rewarding to interpret as against more willful uh, work. Oh, it's here, is it? Look at that. Right, thank you. No, how did you do it? Sorry. Okay. And so, um, that was a, a lesson. My first project I began, um, that I was in full charge of, was with a man called Kunud Munk. And he was the right-hand person with Hudson, uh, who designed the opera house with Arab. And uh, this was his first and big job. And it was a brewery. These are about 33 meter high walls that were cantilevering up for months before the infill came in. And um, my mentor was Ovarup himself on this job, though I was in charge. And uh, that was a great education as well, to be able to think up many options and then come in quickly to one. Um, I also learned from the continuity in the company in that the chap who designed the glass walls of the opera house, um, uh, he advised me this is a glass facade that's 30 meters long, 27 wide, high, and it's working on, it cranks in twice, so it does that. And it's um, designed like a bridge. It's fixed at the ground and it expands on the two sides and up to the roof. These all sliding bearings. Otherwise, the glass would crack. So that was also, I mean, there were all sorts of lessons to learn. Traditionally, in a brew house, normally a brewery would be on one story, and you find very, these diagonal brace structures, like see this one, the scaffolding, all these zigzags, and usually structurally, everyone braces everything up to keep it safe. But I found that, and I keep finding, that the material one uses to just keep gravity loads up often can also do other work. 
And so I designed a multi-rise platform without any bracing. And it was to give a kind of see-through cathedral aspect to the brewing art. And that was uh, the big job, 200 meters long. Um, and happy to say that 25 years on, when the Sunday Times polled various works in, in England um, to see how they stood the test of time, this one won a prize again for uh, best architecture. Then um, my, I won the competition for the Stuttgart Art Gallery with Jim Sterling. And that was my first encounter, really, with a great architect and a wonderful three-dimensional thinker. And also was the beginning of my journey into architecture, because through the design of that and winning the competition and designing the project, there were various spaces I got involved with, arguing with Jim on spatial characteristics, not on any structural grounds. And it took some time when he realized that I wasn't arguing to make the structure more pragmatic or doing anything, but I was actually arguing about architectural uh, episode, how structure can punctuate space, create sea realities, things like that. So um, the curved wall was an instance. And of course, at that time, I was a junior, so I didn't get credited with much of this work. Uh, but it was a very important lesson and particularly those who might have seen this building. Um, there are areas here where columns come in and it looks like it's to support things, but actually they were coming in to break up the space. And once Jim Sterling realized that I was actually arguing on architectural merit, um, our relationship changed and we, we bonded much better and we went on to work with each other for 15 years till he died. Then there were a series of projects. Uh, I can't list them all because there were many. This is Temasek in Singapore the last project he did before he died. Um, in London, the uh, poultry, it's called number one poultry. And then my first design project as a designer was when the Portuguese invited me um, to, this is Alvaro Cesar designed a pavilion here, and I was invited by the Expo people to design a reception area for the Prime Minister and the opening of the Expo. And this is a concrete uh, drape, which I punctured at two ends to let the light through, and suddenly the weight of the piece, you know, 2,000 tons of concrete, vanish. It's an 80-meter span with about uh, 15 centimeters of concrete, and so it looks paper thin, and it's rather beautiful in just the simplicity of the drape. Also, the cut had a pragmatic need in that Portugal has earthquakes, not strong ones, mild ones. And that is like a necklace. If the, if the building shakes, it jiggles around. So it, the forces don't go through and crack this very thin shell. And then at the same sort of time, I met Rem Kohlhaas and had a very fertile relationship with him. Um, and in truth, with Rem, I would say we were sharing design all the way, um, starting uh, conceiving from, from scratch, this one in particular, uh, which then became known by Time magazine as the house of the century. It's got all sorts of innovations inside, but also this, there's, the trick here is to have nothing basically underneath the footprint. Uh, most things that support the house are counterintuitive, and this is a spiral staircase. Um, it was for a disabled man, severely disabled man, and his wife 
asked us to do something for his last few years that his spirit could fly. And they bought this amazing house, well, land over Bordeaux, and by various ways of positioning elements of structure, we released the tectonic form. And it's a well-publicized project in architecture, so I won't go into it too much. And then with Kohlhaas as well, I began a series of experiments. The standard language of a brace in a roof, which again would be a zigzag, this became an arch form. And gradually what I was finding is that the structure became a poetic of the architecture. Either it became a fundamental motive that drove the compilation of space, or it became a decorative element. Um, but it was ambiguous in its reading. It wasn't explicit. It, it worked as architecture as well as structure. And then we started, I played with uh, inclinations of columns, frames, and hybrid structures. This was a huge conference center in France, which has uh, timber as tension, and again, counterintuitively, steel in compression, with just reinforcement bar welded together. And these are like a do-it-yourself plank. They all came put together quickly, and it went up. Also, another thing I started developing with Kohlhaas was if you have a form that's prismatic and bending around large spaces, these are 20 meters, 30, 40 meter high planes. Don't, don't make them so thick to make them do their job, but let them be thin enough to be generally good for wherever, say 80%, 70% of the cover. But where it does not work, just simply put in props and things. And actually, that has a startling effect on the architecture. The assumption of cleanliness, the assumption of purity that often goes with modernism, clean lines, I find interrupting them, almost sabotaging them sometimes, does wonders for, and this is a space of entry where you enter at ground level through here, climb up steep stairs, going into the auditorium over here, and this huge void is punctured by these flying buttresses. Also a similar trick on the Seattle Library. Again, a single skin. And here, of course, unlike Portugal, where the last project was, this is serious earthquake in Seattle. It's the San Andreas Fault. And again, the skin is a single skin, but where needed, like this huge plane here, I just doubled up for one part, just piggybacked it. And the effect, again, on the oblique, as you look, is quite lovely. These are temporary columns during construction. I don't have a finished picture. And then, um, as Chana introduced, the pavilions and serpentine, they've been a feature of the architectural program in Europe. And they've got now worldwide recognition. They're about 11 done now. I've done. But you see the timber starts zigzagging. You expect the line to go through like a normal timber shell, but it doesn't. And it comes because putting a one, the whole thing is made by one standard piece of wood, and it's drilled in the ancient way, mortise and tenon. You push, make a hole, push this in, push the other one in, and you go on. And you get this sort of zigzagging effect. The lines do not travel through, which is the normal grid like the seats you're seated on, the lines just travel through when you grid things up. And so this kind of effect is um, these kind of uh, lines form shuffling in space, the sort of animation of geometry with simple strategy is what I want to talk about uh, today. And 
the, there are three models to think about architectural form making. There is the classical model. And Western architecture derives its thinking from Greek architecture. And here is the standard column and beam language being introduced to the world. And really not much has changed if you think about it. When you go around buildings on the high street and you see the frames of columns going up, beams going across, it's really as the materials grew and you left stone, then uh, steel could span that distance and you needed a column there and there. And so it opened up space. The colonnade started to disappear and the frame appeared. But basically not much has changed in 2,000 years. The conceptual modeling is still post and beam and frame. And deep behind that thinking is assumption of a center of organization and you set up a border around it. So you set the border, you set the center, and then the consequence of that is gridding. Now, when you grid, you basically subdivide. So it is a reductive process, and you're trapping space. The assumption is that you are the universal creator as the architect. You know everything, so you create the boundary, you put the point in the center, it's centric driven. And it comes actually from earlier beliefs of a single source. God the creator, the Big Bang, single point source. And from that comes everything. So you center it, border it, and you measure from it, and you end up with the grid. And that's been a model for 2,000 years, tried and tested, and it works for us, and it gives functional box typology space. In the last 50 years, the center has started to move, which puts basically a distortion in the system. So instead of simple grids, um, you start getting jumping spaces within. You get more fluidity into the architecture. Flow plates start sliding. Nothing is being too trapped. And in the extreme condition of this, it, breaks, it moves to fragmentation it moves to an ultimate distortion where people are almost tearing apart the box. We talk of thinking outside the box, but this, this model of thinking conceptually is still within the box, but tearing it, pulling it apart. And it's extreme, I'm showing some examples here. You start Tom Main, you start fragmenting, literally tearing apart things. But you can still see it's coming from the box typology and the frame. Lieberskind. And here is a very direct distortion where the tower should go straight up, but it bends and is literally distorted. The problem I have with that model of thinking is that you know where it's coming from. This is a tower that's been twisted. It's not really a new original piece of thinking. And if you distort, though I think if you do it mildly, it works, you're better off working in the classical model and inventing as much as you can, which is what most architects do, trying to work within those models, releasing space as best they can. And there are limitations on the distortion model. So it's like if you have a ball 
at the bottom of a valley and you push the ball up the hill, the higher up you go, the more you're distorting the position of rest, it wants to go back. And everyone knows if you are stuck up the hill with a big ball and a weight, you know it wants to come back here. The normative, the norm, where it's been distorted from, pulls it back, the way we read form. When you interpret a form, you don't have to be an architect even. You look at the form and you kind of think, I know where that's coming from. It's, it's still the box. So, but if you flip that to here, now you're in no man's land. Because now you start going off, roll the ball off, and you're going off on a wild goose chase. You know where you're going to go. So what happens though, a new conceptual model has grown to give you some kind of guideline, some kind of rule set to go through when you start going off into the unknown. You're leaving your book of references. You're leaving everything you've known. You're going into new territory. And now what's happened is the center has gone out. There is no frame within which you're working. So it forms a self-organization. One move compiles the other move. So in traditional architecture, we space the gap. We take the void, we border it, and we say we'll have something here and something here. We space the gap. In these methods, you start compiling the interval, one thing relational to the other. So very contemporary thinking and it leads to an animation of geometry, and you use certain things called algorithms. They could be simple ones, geometrical, or they could be very complex ones. So basically what I want to talk to you about, about three or four, four projects and one artwork in this system. So there's the comparison chart, the classical model, the last 50 years, which, and some of it at its extreme is called deconstructivism. And then a new area of thought, which is emergence, emergent architecture. It's not a good word, but it means it's self-organizing itself, which is a strange concept if you're not used to it. And the structural model behind that is the classical model is very well defined. The beam is trapped by the columns. The distortion model starts to play with floor plates, columns slide around. Uh, some of the work with Kohlhaas I was doing is in this model where things start inclining. And then the new, the emergent model is when one support is dependent on the other, on the other, on the other, and you start a chain reaction going. It's a kind of cascade effect. And a great example of that is the one Chana talked about uh, the Serpentine Pavilion of 2002. It's the first time I used these kind of techniques properly, and um, I just want to now describe this project to you. The Serpentine Gallery in London in Hyde Park runs these projects for three months every year, and the idea, brilliant idea, um, marketing-wise, is to invite someone who's never worked there before. And as I said, in some of them I've been co-author, in some I've collaborated. This one was co-authored with Ito. And we began this by saying, let's make a box, standard typology, classical model if you like, but let's do something that makes the box disappear if you were in there. What do you do? How do you make something feel different in space? And we started with some random lines on the roof, but with columns, straight columns going down here. 
And that really was making an arcade and putting a sort of funny roof on it. It was a distortion model on a classical model. There were two parts to the thinking. And it would always have felt like that. So I knew something else was needed, something, the ball on top of the hill rolling off somewhere. So I started a journey. I drew a square and put a line at the half point and went to the third point. So that's the first line. Then I repeat the same idea again. So the square is here, I go to the other side, start at the half, go to the third. Half to the third, half to the third. Now I have to go outside my original boundary to complete the new square. I'm breaking symmetry. When I go there, then I repeat half of this side to the third of that side. And it goes on and on and on. And after six times of doing it, I've got a rotational organization. And that's sufficient to hold load up. So the structural engineer me said, well, that's fine. That would work. Beams don't have to go this way or this way at right angles. But then I was making a piece of architecture. And the structure has to be embedded in the architecture, not as a skeleton, but as a motivational force. And so I extended all the lines on a hunch. And if you did that properly, you get this kind of maze of lines. Now, if you imagine all the lines here, Every line you see, except the border, just all the lines, become steel plates about this high and very thin. And project them outside the plane of what you're looking at. So the, the steel lines are all outside. Then cut the corners, just cut them off, dot, dot, dot along here, and then you fold it. And then you get that. It's very simple in a way, you just, you could draw this, you don't have to do any, you can take half to a third, half to a third, you draw it, keep drawing it, extend all the lines, it'll take you some time, cut the corners out, fold it, and you've got a box that has this pattern on it. This is the way it works. Now all the lines extend, put the ground plane in, then I cut, cut the corners out, then I fold, and I join the vertical oblique to the horizontal with these little moves here that gives a very fine ornamentation to the piece. And the bonus here was that these could be prefabricated away and brought in a truck following the algorithm. So here's the original square. Here is the new one being made. And then these triangle pieces can get made and brought to site. Remember, we only have four months from start to opening day from a blank piece of paper. And because of that, it can be easily done. And basically, a team of three people put this together. Got feedback. And on the roof, this is Ito and I, Toyo Ito, the Japanese architect. We decided to coffer the pattern, that is, alternate like a checkerboard, solid and void. Solid became aluminium, and the void became glass. So aluminium, glass, aluminium, glass, and it just went round and round. It didn't matter where you started, 
as long as you kept going alternating. And that led to this fabulous pavilion. The light was always changing. The irregularity of the lines had its own order, so it never looked chaotic. Many people were photographing this and trying to puzzle out the lines, but in the end they felt something was working. They didn't know, they weren't architects or designers, but they knew there was something organizing it, which was interesting to note. And then we gapped the aluminium, so I wanted to give the essence of speed, because a line is a velocity for me. And so it was like a zip, 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 all these lines shooting around you, giving its own vectors, giving its own momentum. Nothing was static in what was going on. Even though the, the tectonic architecture is frozen, they don't physically move, but you try to imply movement. And this simple device, and here was the minimum I chose that there'll be 12 millimeters for most of the lines. Where it was needed, it went up to 20, 24, and then 36, and then 48. Very few at 48. Here's the roof, the, one of the main principal diagonals going through, one of the first lines, 48, coming down to 20, coming down to 10. From an engineering point of view, if you ever did the calculations here, these thin plates buckle. They can't, they can't really work if you do what, you know. But what happens is this kind of a structure is highly redundant. The classical model is what we would call deterministic structure. You cut something, you cut the support, the thing falls down. These one, these kind of forms redistribute. And so the entire net becomes stable. You're not dealing anymore with A line here or A line there. You're dealing with essentially an organism almost. And that's a wholly new sort of idea as well to get your head around when you're dealing with traditional checking authorities. And so here's a fabulous picture I love of the corner. The right angle is there, it's clearly here. It's clearly in the glass here, but then it completely disappears here. It's excavated out. And this goes all around, so that actually the entire box has disappeared. You're not aware of it. Now here's the pattern we started with, half to a third, half to a third. What was interesting is, if you move this to over here and then just go there, so instead of that line, you just make it that, a little more oblique, you get a completely different pattern. And this is the essence of these kind of systems. They're dependent on where you start, because you get something very different with a slight shift. And now if you cut the corners, <coughs> fold it, when you look up at the roof, you'll get this tornado pattern. And on the side walls, you get these very severely inclining patterns. So completely different. I wish I had some slides. I built four of these for my exhibition in Denmark. Different patterns, each one. They're completely different. You wouldn't think at all they came from the same idea of a ratio between here to here, and that's all. Carried through, all lines extended, cut corners, fold. And if I do the same half to a third with an octagon, Gradually, the hole opens up now. And if I go to a 20-sided polygon, these are 20 sides to this shape, you start to braid a ring. And this could be at small scale, a bracelet. Or if that was kil um, two kilometers across, it could be a space station orbiting. Structurally, it's completely sound. And these, these braids hold everything together. 
So the idea behind this is that in the end, you're entering a new world of no scale. You're entering a world of high pattern being organized in a dynamic way. And it's how you interpret it. And what happens then, the designer has the choice of material, wedding it to scale. So if these were huge steel beams, maybe this could be one kilometer wide. If I start with some small uh, weak fiber, then it could be something that becomes a small diameter like that. And when I shoot out, so here's the pavilion, this little black dot. I go zooming right out. I see here now the organization, four spiral patterns. So what looked zip, zipping around actually has this deep sense of order. Like the opera house had the fans on the football, underneath everything is this spiral pattern. And as you zoom in close, of course, it becomes more chaotic and distributed. Ten years ago, this would have been cost prohibitive because you'd have to cut every panel. But with CAD-CAM processes, we went straight from the computer to the cutting machines. There were no drawings done on this job at all. And this was eight years ago. So in many ways, it was a prototype for this kind of work. I like this, this picture because you get the classical model, and you get a new one here with its own, and, but behind both of them, there's a separate logic. But they work, and this doesn't look, to me anyway, totally um, uh, spontaneously whimsical. It has its own rigor. It, it holds itself well with its own logic. You don't know the logic, um, nor would you know what ratios went into this, but this has its own grid logic as well. That's the classical model. This is the emergent model. And the same idea gives you transparency everywhere, or at other parts, if the pattern was big, you get closed opacity. And so in the end, you get a building that is a structure, piece of structure, piece of architecture, um, but more almost an active meditation on geometry. And the space was absolutely wonderful to be in. And nobody, when we had evening functions, nobody wanted to go home. So it gave me kind of conviction and testament to keep going in this direction. So around about the same time, there's another project I want to go through. This one was not built. Uh, this was with Daniel Lieberskin, the uh, architect from Germany and New York now. Here is a, like a dartboard. And imagine I take a point there and I swing it round about 80 degrees, just like that. And I point here and join the line. So that has swung there, so that goes there. Then again I swing it, same 80 degrees. The same one, one order, repeat the rule. So that happens, it goes round, round, but at some moment, <coughs> randomly, it can change its radius. So the radius is here, and from here it suddenly gets shorter. The radius is shorter, and then repeats. Then it jumps again. So that way, you get a sort of zigzagging inside the circle. Now, at the same time, if you let the center move slowly, then you start to drift. And it all depends on how fast the center moves versus how fast the radius is moving, what angles. So this particular one, once you get a trace like this, you get this. Now, that's only a line, so I pull it up and then flesh it out. If you flesh it out, this is a spring. It can't be a building. It can't close itself. 
But if I don't pull it out so much, then everything bears on everything else. And you get that diagram I showed you of support upon support upon support. You can't determine exactly what's going. The load shoots all over here. It's a holistic piece of wrapping. And there's the blue line. So there's the form, very strange form, very dramatic. And this was for the Victoria and Albert Museum, which Liebeskin and I entered, and we won it against very stiff opposition from Zahadi, Norman Foster, Grimshaw, and Chipperfield. So the best of England were against us. And uh, we won. And of course, the chairman called me privately and said, how does this work? So I had to go through this kind of explanation. And this blue line is the original blue line I traced and lifted. If you look down the form, you find the rotation here. And it's stiff enough, you don't need any core. The form oblique holds itself together. And you don't need any windows because the overlap lets light in like a vitrine. The lights just come through. So startling form, huge controversy when it was published. Um, you can see the classical buildings. And people thought this came from perhaps the distorted model, the press were against it, a lot of it. And they said, you know, it's just sliding forms everywhere. But then we had various uh, in-house openings. And when we explained how it was working, people started shifting their perspective. And in the end, it got good approval, except the government couldn't find half the money. We had private investment for half, but we needed government money because it's a government museum. And because it's a strip, I can unfold it. And if I make cuts in it, I can then wrap it up again and get a form. So, and then the floor plates can slide anywhere in there. The overlaps also give strange moments. This is the escape stair, rather wonderfully drifting around through the coiling, the overlaps of the coils. And internally, you had this space. As one of the walls move up, um, it intersects another wall, and inside what is a room, you are finding a folded space. And I cut away the floors here so that the sense of the oblique was always moving past you. So you were in some kind of slightly moving vertical around you. And the wrapping itself gave us all the compartmentation. Normally, in traditional work, you would make the, the void, and then you'd fill in the walls, compartmenting it in. You're gridding it down. Here, you compile the space. You get what you get. And it gives dramatic, interesting spaces, forces you to reinterpret what in architecture would call the program. Often, you find a new twist on the program that you can use because of what you have. So this is all structure, which has made its own architecture. So these are the forms. And up at the top, you get the most beautiful forms. This is the top levels where these slide, and it's like an amphitheater here. And this is the last movement here. And then I designed the tiling, but I don't want to go into that now. Um, it was based, suffice it to say, it was based on some ancient traditions called the golden section, which I'll be describing in a minute. That's a close-up of the facade. Now again, like the Serpentine Pavilion, the start point is crucial. So that's what that building came from. 
But if the radius does not go 80 degrees, what if the radius swung around 170 degrees? It's swinging around so, the jumps are so big, the center doesn't have time to move. And then I pull it up, flesh it out, and I get a crystal-like form. So same idea, same target diagram, but just the radius swings differently. If the radius swung 90 degrees only, and I did the same thing, I'd get a vertical box. It just has a right angle shape within the, the circles, and then you extend it. So these methods cover the norm that we are in. They're not outside making Cartesian form. And if the radius moves very slowly at five degrees, the center has time to move, and then pick it up, flesh it out, and you get this kind of Mebius strip. And there's a whole infinite variety in between. So this is something I'm looking at for a children's playground in Switzerland, when make forms like this where they can go in and out. So buildings, any, any forms are possible. It's what your intention is programmatic-wise, and then you interpret with the forms you get. It's like these variations come like this. I love this diagram, which is a cell, a biological cell. And depending on the nutrients, it can grow whiskers, it can grow branching, or it can grow like this with a honeycomb pattern. It's the same composition. It's the same deep organizational idea in how the cell is made. But depending on the nutrients, it can change. And that's due to feedback. You do something like a half to a third, you keep repeating it, it starts to do something to organize or drive off into chaos. If you take a chessboard and take the horse move, the two and one move, depending which square you start on, you'll get a different pattern. You can try tonight and plot it. And they look symmetrical, but they're not quite. But again, it's a non-linear process. The horse move is an awkward one, two and one. And so it starts plotting space differently. And here's a mathematical equation, the only bit of maths for the lecture tonight. If this number C is a complex number, and you start with just one particular value of that, and then you keep repeating it into it, you just keep repeating this loop, and you get this amazing thing that Benign Mandelbrot discovered around 1978, and became known as the fractals, and he invented or created this whole new field of fractal work through these amazing pictures. And the idea was, because it repeats itself, wherever you go in here, and if you zoom in a million times, you'll get something that looks like this again. It keeps replicating itself, slightly shifting, like nature does. And if I change the C to a slightly different one, it doesn't have to be wild like this. It could be beautiful and symmetric. And this is a fractal, believe it or not, z squared plus C, but the C is slightly different and you get this beautiful symmetry. So you can get that from the same idea, or you can get that. And this is our DNA molecule when you look down it. I think when they finally find out it's organizational properly, it will be found to be some kind of a fractal. I just put it up for comparison. But anyway, this is nature, and nature works on fast exchange of information in billions of a second. How do we in architecture get feedback? I showed you the pavilion, the, the, the V&A. But I asked myself, what's the minimum feedback? And I 
thought it has to be a line, because that's the minimum element we work with in design, has to be a line, and you fold the line. Immediately you do that, you get a left and right-handedness. And for me, that's a sufficient level of feedback. It's the minimum. But just folding the line a zigzag. And I used this idea for a bridge in Portugal. So I drew two arcs, the very first sketch that didn't meet, and I drew a plaza in between, so you didn't drop in the water, you walked here, across, and went there. That formalized itself into a structural diagram that had a lot of stiffness this way, and then came into this idea, where if you take this half and you rotate it, you'll get the other half. So the left and right are rotatable. So this, this both-sidedness was, I thought, the minimum feedback condition. So it's not linear, a normal bridge, you go straight across, you rush across like a conduit. This one's not like that. Then I put the support on one extreme edge. Now if you take this half and you rotate it, then this support on that side has to be over there. So that's what I used for the bridge, and it was the, called the Pedro and Inez Bridge, which was an uh, amazing story of a legend, which I can't go into now, but uh, the mayor said that's what he wanted to name it. Basically, Pedro and Inez were royalty, um, and they never could get together um, to get married, and there was a tragedy all around. But um, the idea was that this bridge, because their, their place was just over here, um, connected them up again. So left and right were doing things there. Here's the bridge, 200 meter span straight across, <coughs> And the clear span of this form is, but it's not one arch. Normally, they expect an arch to do that. This comes here and stops, disappears. Somewhere else on the other side starts another bit. So it's a compounded form. In the end, making up an arch action to get the loads over. But at mid-span, though, sorry. So it disappears here, so at mid-span, there's no structure at all. It just floats across. And so in the middle of 200 meters, there's only something this deep going across. The transition is sculptural. And here you see the support's very strong. And again, that sort of masculinity of the form, the big strength of sitting astride like this, I counterpointed it with a more lace-like balustrade pattern. And there's the bridge again. And this balustrade pattern, when I began to look of how to make the balustrades here, I started with a study, which I always do. I start with the norm, which is here, and I start to see whether distortion works or not. And then somewhere along the line, I said, no, forget that, jump into something new. And so I thought this is what would work a kind of crisscrossing all the way. And that led to a folding form, because if I had the handrail straight up, that belongs to the language of going straight across. It's your straight crossing. It's your bridge as a conduit. This is bridge as a, mean, as a pass, passage of travel, as a transitional architectural piece. So it's more about your journey than about the architecture itself saying, here it is, go. So it's, again, ambiguous in what it's doing. 
and I zigzag, I mean I incline the uh, decking, the floor, and the consequence of these folded hand balustrades were that the handrail went in and out too. And that was quite nice because it gave each individual a private niche. So unlike the handrail on a ship that goes zooming past again in a straight line, this one kinks around you. So you can have your private space on the bridge. I don't know if you can see this at the back, but then I colored, so I showed this to the mayor, and I showed that I wanted to color the balustrades. That is to slow your foot down more, so that you look laterally. I didn't want a sense of rush across. And so I used four colors, pink, blue, green, yellow. They are low carbon glass, so there's no green in the glass. They're just body tinted right through. They're not any film of color. So when the sun's shining, bright sun, Portugal, it just, you just feel it very light there as a true color. And you can see the zigzag shadow coming from the zigzag of the handrail. More pronounced here, lovely shadows on the deck at midday. And I extended to give the asymmetry more punch. I took one side out, shaped the sloping embankment, but the other side was a sheer drop and then repeated it there. There's a sheer drop on that side and a sloping embankment on the other side. Again, a complete reverse of the left and right. More pictures of the bridge. <coughs> this is seen from the river, looking through one set of hand, the last to the other. And you see the dynamic sense of the bridge here, just that, that kink, that zigzag. And in here in particular, this is very interesting because when the sun's shining here, this piece acts as a fascia, and the sun reveals itself completely on it. The other side goes into shadow, and it almost looks like the bridge spans right across, like a vanishing. And at certain moments in the sun, the step aside here goes black in shadow, so it just looks like it even doesn't meet. More pictures, as the sun sets, the glass starts catching on fire. The heavy shadow of the bridge as the sun's going really down. Lights come on. And as night falls, the bridge disappears, and you just get a braid of light across the Mondego River. This is in Coimbra, the ancient university town in Portugal. So this is a kind of cascade effect as well. It's a very lovely algorithm. And those who are interested technically, um, it's in the A plus U monograph on my work. I don't want to go into it here because it's, it's a complex little piece. But it's infinitely uh, pr producible. And so here's a picture that familiar to what you saw at the beginning when I had the structural support, one on the other, on the other, on the other. Instead of it being a diagram of structure, I turn it now into a diagram of numbers. So these are all ones. And what's intriguing about this, so then they cascade along. And in mathematical terms, this is called a continued fraction. 1 upon 2 is a fraction, but if it's 1 upon 2 upon 1 upon 2 upon, it becomes what's called a continued fraction. And so here, if I cut here and calculate this bit, I get 3 over 2. If I cut here, I get 5 over 3. If I cut here, I get 8 over 5. 
13 over 8, and you see a pattern that's coming out. That's called the Fibonacci numbers. It's a, it was uh, discovered around 1150, I think, by Fibo, the son of Nachi. And what happens is it's a feedback loop. And to get the next number, you take the, from here, you take this, you go back one, add it to this, so 3 plus 2 gets 5. 5 plus 3 gets 8. 8 plus 5 gets 13. And miraculously, these numbers appear in nature all over the place. And what was intriguing is that if you divide the higher number by the lower number, as you go further up here, 21 over 13, 34 over 21, etc., it comes down to the same ratio, roughly 1.618. It's a very awkward number. Forget that. Let's just call it the golden ratio. And it's a certain fix used from classical times through art and architecture about a proportional length of a rectangle to its side. So I found them in nature. I did my own investigations. And these are well-published things, the way plants grow around the, around the stem. These numbers appear again. As you start counting individually, the numbers, the eighth over the fifth, thirteenth over the eighth, all of that happens. And they are also in sunflower arrangement. If you start counting all of these sunflower seeds, you'll find these spirals are 13 apart in numbers. These are eight apart, and so on. So the golden ratio is embedded deep in the way these things work. So I thought, again, what if I use them for architecture back in a contemporary sense? So I looked at the packing here. And I wanted to make Cartesian space. So the challenge in these techniques would be, can you also make rectangle spaces? How do you do them? So here was an attempt. This is blue, yellow, and red. And that's all there is. And they all have similar shapes to each other. So that is 1.618 times this one. This one is 1.618 times that one. And in each of them, I can keep subdividing down, pulling, pulling things <laughs> apart at all scales. So if I start with a big solid form, and then start excavating out at a certain sequence of just pull things out, a, a very crude spiral opens up. Because that's the other thing. The golden ratio is linked to the snail shell logarithmic spirals, tornadoes, anything that spirals. As I shoot the scale down, it pixelates more. And I use this idea for a building 400 meters long, 150 wide was an Islamic center in the edge of Medina. And the red is the void created as you excavate. And it climbs up from the ground, up in space, up, 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 right to the top and out. So the mosque, and I left the colors in for you to see the red, yellow, and the blue. The same three shapes relative to each other at different scales are being compounded and make this very serene looking space. Of course, this will turn into white or a render. Um, but I just showed you the composition. And you see, unlike a normal rectangle space that would be hollow, all of it, wall, roof, wall, these movements start to interrupt the space. They start to take your eye on a journey very quickly. But they just feel and they relate to each other. So there is an harmonious feeling to the space. The section is interesting. Again, unlike a simple void, you get these levels coming through the erosion pattern. Very small at the top as you got to small scale, big at the bottom. And this line 
is supported by that line, which is supported by that line, which is supported by that. And here you get this sort of piggyback going on again. You can make that conventional with columns just going through these intersection points. You just put the columns through, but they're not in a row. They're staggered. Then you join them with beams that don't go through. They stop, supported that, stop, etc. Or you can have precast panels and put them all together as a pack of cards. But they lead to astonishing form. So here's the project. And I can turn, I kept these forms solid. Of course, if this was somewhere else, the Mediterranean, or even here, I could make these transparent. Now and then they'll be transparent. But I kept them all solid to show the volumes. And being a museum as well, a lot of this was a museum, I want, and, a, and a library, a big library, I wanted to keep the place dark with only the minimum of puncturing for light. And here's a beautiful internal courtyard feeling, and you see the way the forms are compiling themselves. And I would like to think if Louis Kahn was around, he would have liked these, he dealt with very strong forms. And though he dealt with them uh, in Pakistan and elsewhere, as you know, I have a feeling he would have liked these. And of course, you can, the pattern of organization is, can be brought forward onto concrete formwork. And here's looking up into the eye of the god, sort of thing, right up. And of course, these blue voids bring the light and the sun in. You can express the organization in sunscreens. These are crude computer renders. And I was also interested, because being boxes, you can also pixelate. So you can have big rooms, unlike the Arabic Alhambra, the stucco work that goes that way and down, like stalactite. I wanted to go in and out, but with a pixelation. And because you could switch the computer, once the code is in the computer, you can move at different scales. I was interested in if you pixelate, and what if you take away the cubes, the walls, and just have the diagonal planes, then you could get a beautiful thing like this with wires holding it up, like a tensegrity structure. And that led to an idea that depending how these were organized, you get wonderful light patterns on the floor. And as the sun moves, you get different light patterns as well. So these are all Islamic architectures, great with shadow and light, but in a contemporary way. And the, we were fortunate here is that the, uh, the dean of Cairo University and a religious expert we worked with was wanting a contemporary form rather than repeating the traditional form. So this was an attempt at that. And here you see the organization from outside, the big first generation of this idea, second, third, and finally, it fractalizes at the top, almost like the early medieval church builders to break the line of the building against the sky. So it opens all around here. And there is the underlying pattern. So you'd never know that if you're in this building. But underneath all of this is a fractal. That's the first generation, second, third, fourth, fifth, and it goes down, down, and down till it disappears. And because this is what actually is organizing everything, and no one need know that, I can confidently take patterns. I can lay a whole wall of the building out here and take that pattern and put it on the wall. It will feel consistent. I'm absolutely confident. And we're doing those studies now to embed movements in the wall. 
with these sort of patterns. And you can, of course, being scaleless, the whole building can pick that up or a little floor tile could be here. And these start developing the ornament. So it's a wholly self-consistent way of making form. So this idea of the fractal drilling through space, I put into an artwork. This is the last piece I want to show. Another cube, but this time drive a hole through it. That gives me this cube solid now. Like before I did this, this was solid. Put that through each way, then this is solid, this is solid. There are nine solids around here. Do the same thing proportionally. That big one to that is the same as that to that. Now I've got those solid. Redo it. If I keep doing this, the solids almost fractalize and disappear. It's all void. So I became interested in how about a piece of art that was actually organized by the void and not by the solid. We expect material to take solids, cut them out, sculpt them. What if the sculpture was made by the void instead? So here then I cut the form. If I cut it anywhere, I'm going to get zero for void and one for solid. So it's like a binary code, zero, one, zero, one. Lots of zeros because the void dominates. But now if I take the solid, imagine this was made out of some form. I take the solid bits of one, and these are solid bits of one, but now I excavate them out, so I only leave the shell. So I take that little bit, but take what's inside it out, and I got this. Then I drive the void further. I take this bit out and translate it into a solid piece and a chain. Then I can grow something that's actually fundamentally made out of void. So the minimum solid possible is holding it together. Because this shape is the minimum shape to transmit any load between this point, that point, that point, that point. And it has its own artistic curve anyway. So I made this up. And you make it in big caissons, 3 meters, 1.5. Put it together. And the first one I built like this was in America. New York, and I got my students at Penn to build it. And what you do is you get a jig, you put chains in with a turnkey and a lock, you tighten the chains up and stretch them. At a certain point of stretch, you can slide these plates in. You slide them in, you make a column, release the chains, and then they stand up by themselves. So it's like the rope trick. The rope stands up. Totally counterintuitive. You won't believe it when you look at it. You think it's hung from somewhere. Because it's all void, essentially. But it's standing up. So I took this to the first in New York, at a place at a gallery. And you see the chain standing up. Here's the holes. Because I just cut them, so you can walk through the big holes. The ones were driven through the cube. The smaller holes form windows. And here you can walk through the thing. It starts to get very refined and jewel-like at some moments. And there's the basic unit making this all happen. So I've taken this idea on to Chicago and onto a major piece in Tokyo at a recent exhibition I had. And there you see the big, the big holes are in there, which you can walk through from the other room. This is one of three big rooms in the show. You can walk through into it, look out, 
And it's like a hull, it's a massive cave. But it's entirely fractalized. You can see the color, the projections. So you walk through it. It's huge. Four meet, three and a half meters high. And you can occupy it, of course. And it's lovely when people are outside looking in and people look inside looking out. It's like a sieve. It traps you, and yet you can never find its edge. It doesn't have any edge. There's no, there's no boundary. It's absolutely boundless. So it's a strange thing like our universe, which is finite but unbounded. This is a finite piece of space, but it has no boundary. And you have to be in it to understand that. You can't find um, anything. And so this went on down into the, the two big fractal stones, black and white, massive four and a half meter stones. Same ideas, but this is now triangulated, not cubic. And then I reveal the packing again. So this was one massive room of fractals in a new sense of seeing space being made in a new sense of organization. And this is how these big ones work. You can, again, there are four individual tiles that tile it all up, and you can take them out at any scale, and I reveal the big shape, then I reveal its major patterns, second, third generation, fourth or fifth, and then at the sixth, I reveal the mirrors, and I cut it out with foam and put the mirrors on it. And it's another piece made in Chicago. So just to finish very briefly, I'll canter through some. So I majored on those four projects and the artwork for these methods that self-organize. And they lead to coherent form, which has its own beauty. And it holds it together. It's like a book you read with a good author. You enter the world of the author, you're held till you end the book, and you feel reluctant to leave. And it's the same with these spaces. People didn't want to leave them when they were in them. So it's, it is something that I feel convinced about, and I'm pursuing in many ways, different buildings, different places. And just to quickly summarize, this is a um, Museum of Calligraphy in the Emirates. This is a tiling again, a cubic tiling. I won't go through in detail now. But here, I'm doing a formal device of sculpting out the logarithmic spiral that's the golden section, which is this. These are compiled by the golden section, these forms, packed together. Three high forms and low forms here. These are the low forms, organizing accommodation, various things, and this is the museum part. There you see the low-lying places, conference, services, accommodation, and in here is the uh, exhibition space. The dot is something to do with the artist I'm working with. He came to me to make the building. He's got a theory about calligraphy, Arabic letters. And it comes from a 10-part cube. And the name of Allah is said in 99 ways, 100 minus 1. So a 10 by 10 cube, and there's a whole theory around it. So we organize that as the central. So when I sculpt out the forms, and what's in architecture called a Boolean, if I make the negative the positive, it reveals an interior organization. And here is the last cube left, and at its very corner is the source cube. 
and this leads to a revelation in the museum. And I'm working with an exhibition designer who is designing the new Tutankhamun uh, Museum in Cairo. He's very good, and he, the artist, is an Arabic scholar and a, a sacred writer in Arabic. Um, and I'm the architect. We're, we're doing this building together. It was submitted very recently, and we hope to get the go-ahead. It has beautiful forms in it. And the tiling is very simple, just a triangle, uh, slightly jointed, slightly hipped. So it's like a shingle, set of shingles just going around. And it's all white. I wish I had the movie to show you. As the sun moves around it, you get beautiful shadows that move around these shapes. This is a stadium in Cricket Stadium in Ranchi, a massive structure, but very, very simple. It's almost like that drape in Portugal. Um, one huge form that orbits around, tied back, and one massive piece of fabric put there. The idea was that every 10 or 15 years, we could even change the fabric with a different color. And it just hovers like a flying saucer over the pitch. This is a bit of foreshortening, but it's, it's quite clear. It's over the boundary there. And all that holds it back are a few points in space. And this self-sustains itself because it's orbiting. Again, the dynamic sense of movement holds things up. Whereas if I compartmented it and put it together, you can't get it. You've got to have a lot more structure everywhere. These huge moves usually release architectural space. A bridge that's just finished in, in uh, Penn, where I teach, um, it's unique, I think, in that it has no side, it has no beams at all. In Portugal, there was a sense of beam with the arch and the arch, which disappeared and came back. Here, a ribbon coils itself around. There are four ribbons that keep coiling. And this is part of a landscape strategy where I had the land, plants, asphalt, bicycle track, tracked in the landscape, and then it rises through a berm and comes into a tectonic form. So again, it's not a bridge, it's a passage, it's a way of travel. And the architecture is forming itself around you. So these go here, up, along, and down. So there are no side beams. There's no beams holding anything up. It's just a coiling. They call it the DNA bridge, but it's not. It's just four separate coils. But from outside, Amtrak insisted it looked like a bridge. And it is when you look at it this way. But these shadow lines here are because this is going in and out. There is no continuous line along here. And here you send the sense of travel. There's no straight line through it. Comes down, zigzags, moves on, coils itself. And it tightens at mid-span to give strength. This is a project in Nice, in Saint-Tropez, for one of my clients. The restaurant, uh, come pavilion. Since the Serpentine pavilions, I fortunately get asked to do many pavilions because uh, they're put up quickly as well. This is a twist building, which I did for a master plan in Battersea, which we did. And it's a building that's a solid form that twists, so it's part of the distortional mode, I guess you can argue. It's not a piece that gets compiled, but internally there are no columns in the whole 80 meter length of the building. This is an atrium with a floor here and a floor down here, 
but instead of this single edge, I twisted the edge as well. And the edge then, if you take a piece of paper and twist it, it tends to stand up by itself. So it pre-stresses itself. So again, it stands up, and the building is, I think, again, has no columns, has nothing. And I took the skin and triangulated it. And now I've just got word that the man who commissioned this piece and then sold on the site is wanting to do this as a library or a office building in Nanjing. And so I've just, this was last week, which is good news because I'd love to build this building. It has these sensational curving forms. And this is the lobby area. And lastly, to finish with, uh, this monster I have to cover in, uh, with Remcolas in Beijing. It's the Chinese Central Television Headquarter building. It's five million square foot in one building, or 500,000 square meters. And you can see the bracing moving around. And here the idea I had was this big form, if it was curtain-walled, it wouldn't be so interesting. It, would, it could look like it was wanton. But by having a bracing that changes its nature as it travels around the form, your eye goes with the form. And you don't embrace the size. So engaging in the architecture and the entire tectonic form. And this is 240 meters up, 270 here, 240 here, 60 stories. That goes out in space, 50 meters, 16 story building, going out there, going back in space. Only in China, as they say. And there is the inclination just before we connected them up. That was a competition we won. And you see this bracing line that moves and curves around, see this? This comes because behind, these are the broadcasting studios in here, and the story height of the admin offices keeps shifting, so there's a jumping nature to the story height. Now, if you take all the columns and the floors and use a traditional language, this is what you'd get then, just traditionally doing it. But then I decided things don't have to be in plane. You can move one plane out of the other, and it still works. So I push the whole bracing line outwards. And then when you lose the floor and the vertical lines, you suddenly get this serial pattern where you get these strange moments. And that's what we put on the building. And the way I did that was simply taking a standard grid. These are 10 meter diamonds, turning the whole form out, running a program. And of course, the earthquake is severe in this area. And being the central television headquarters, they wanted it to withstand a one in thousand year earthquake. And then when you run the forces, I had a simple room, rule. It was uh, saying where I really needed material, I'd double it up. Where I didn't need it, I'd halve it. So if this was one, ratio one, I'd go to two or four, halving, doubling. And so I would get that, that to that. Then I fold it up, and I get the building. And say this corner piece here, any of these one columns here, is that. Absolutely giant. That's the foundation, to give you a sense of the scale of the project. And it's amazing working with the Chinese, absolutely amazing. This project would never have been done in the West. The trade unions, the, uh, there would be fierce fights for litigation, extras. 
Um, they planned this meticulously with about 30 people for about six months, and then it just went amazingly well. When you think all the things that could have gone wrong, this is connecting up at 260 meters, the two bits. And don't forget, these are cantilevers of 240 meters, and they move even slightly, and joining them up was quite a problem. These are cheekily, we put glass floor plates in here. That's the chairman's office. He looks right down and nothing. Um, so we'll have to go and sit there first. <laughs> and the joining up was done over three stories in a zigzag stitch. Very much what uh, uh, Brunelleschi used in the Florence Dome, the herringbone pattern to keep all the forces together. If we had stitched this up at one level, the building would have torn itself apart. And this is just one, two months ago, an orbiting structure where instead of a tower that just goes up continuously connected, I realized that if I had a line that orbited, provided the orbit connected to itself, then you'd have a form that can rise. And this was with the artist Anish Kapoor for the British Olympics. So 2012, this will be on your TV screens. Um, and the tube is an ellipse. There's a focus here and a focus here. It's like a planetary system. It orbits around. And then I flesh it out with a coil, take out the solid green form. Then you get a wire form. Then I put in these levels in. And because it's winding, it's, it's literally a winding, you can, the first strand is made up. You, it's, it's completely different to what you're looking here. So all this work, really, to sum up, is a search for a kind of animation in architecture to get the tectonic form to be released a bit, relate to itself more, start to talk to each other, the components, and in there, look for the poetic of the structure that can completely liberate and underpin a sort of architecture, a new sense of architecture being made. And this work will go on, and I see it as sort of writing a set of new codes in architecture. So what's next is more of the same, I guess, but equally, I was talking to some people before this lecture, I'd like to spend more time in Sri Lanka. Uh, I've got a small place up near Kalpitiya, and I want to run an architectural school there twice a year with uh, foreign um, participation and from Sri Lanka. And so maybe some of you there would uh, come there, so um, look forward to seeing you. And the website, which is not up yet, but it'll be palagama.com, hopefully in a month's time, and we'll release details there. It'll be a fun week where we can explore these contemporary ideas by the Sri Lankan sea. Thank you very much for listening. You'll be very patient.